Amen. So we're doing this, uh, this sermon series right now, a topical series uh, on the church, the gathered church. As I've said every time we've come together over the last few weeks to talk about these things, that the aim here is to remind us of what the church is, to remind us of, of the, our ecclesiology, the centrality of, of church life as Christians, and really just to help us regroup and regather after a long season of disrupted church life because of the pandemic. We're, obviously, we're not completely out of that yet, uh, and there are people who are still watching us online primarily, and, but we're, we're getting there by God's grace, uh, and this was uh, really meant to be a, a kind of a call back to church life. I was uh, sort of overhearing a conversation this week between two other people. Uh, I wasn't eavesdropping, I promise, but I just overheard a conversation. They were talking about uh, church. Uh, this person doesn't go to this church, was talking about their church and the pastor of their church and just how, you know, how, how preaching was at their church, like how, how good the preaching was, really, frankly. And, uh, and the comment was made that, uh, that this, this pastor never really hits home runs in his sermons, uh, but always seems to hit singles. You know, and like, and that was like a good thing, right? I mean, every every preacher wants to wants to be able to, to get up and, and preach the word and have everybody leave and just be like, that was powerful. That would be a home run sermon, right? Uh, but she said this this guy just he just hits singles every week, but those singles hit, you know, just kind of get us get us on base and keep us moving and bring us bring us home. Uh, and I thought, you know, that's that's what I'm hoping for really with this sermon series. I know none of these ser sermons are, are home runs. They're not designed to be home runs. I don't know if I've ever hit a home run as a preacher, but, but I, I do know that, that the goal here was to just to keep kind of hitting those singles with the intent of, of sort of bringing us around to a big picture understanding of the church, of the importance of the church and, and our, our lives individually and corporately, and then ultimately, pun intended, yes, to bring us home to bring us home. So keeping in line with the practical nature of this series, we're going to be talking this morning about giving as an act of corporate worship. We've talked already about what the church is and why it's important. We've talked about the, the need to gather together. We've talked about how we, uh, you know, how we, we put the, the, as the word of God is central in forming what we do. Uh, I'm trying to continue to have the rubber meet the road and thinking about the ways in which we corporately worship God together and I don't know if you've ever thought about giving as a way in which we corporately worship God together, but it is. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that practically this morning. It means I'm going to spend less time on the theology of giving. That's actually a, a huge topic. Scripture has a lot to say about our money and the way that we use it for the glory of God. Uh, so I'm going to do that a little bit this morning, but I'm going to spend more time talking about the practice itself. There is a focus today on the way that we use our money for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of worshiping God. There are other ways, of course, that we can give. Uh, we have time and we have talents, right? We have spiritual gifts. And I'll talk about that just a little bit, but mostly that's what next week's sermon will be aiming at. How are we, how are we giving and contributing to the needs of the body? So here's a question that often comes up when you talk about giving or you talk about money in church. Why talk about money 
in church, right? Why do we talk about things like this? This topic is either, I think, most often uh, abused in churches. I think like prosperity gospel churches where they talk, seem to talk about money every week. Or I would say this topic is often neglected in church. Uh, and, and maybe in our church, uh, we don't talk about it enough. Uh, I usually just, you know, we teach through books of the Bible and we, we take what comes. And, and so we do talk about money and we talk about giving but it's not a, a regular emphasis here at all. That's probably fairly normal for other churches as well. I, and I wonder whenever it does come up, if, if there are people who, you know, maybe you're, 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 you've just come to the church or it's just be your first Sunday here and maybe a thought is like, oh, here they go talking about money. They just want our money in the church, right? Uh, truth is, truth is, the Bible actually speaks a great deal about money. And it speaks a great deal about how we use the money that we have. Do you know that Jesus spoke about money more often than he spoke about faith and prayer combined? We don't often think of it that way, you know. And sometimes it's because of the way he does that is, is not necessarily overt. It's, it's not super obvious. But he spoke in parables all of the time. He has about 40 parables. And did you know that that 11 of those 40, over a quarter of them, were about money or used money as a way to teach us spiritual truths. So here's the point. The point is that the focus isn't necessarily about money, but it's this, is that there is clearly a link between our hearts and our, our worship and our wallets, right? And if we think about that, that, that does make sense. I mean, money is a huge focus of our of our attention when it comes to our security right when it comes to our sense of stability our hopes we pin so much on our ability to financially meet those goals and sustain ourselves in those ways so it makes sense that there's a there's a pretty big link between our hearts and our wallets there's an old saying that says the purse strings are attached to the heart strings that's not a biblical statement but it's a truism that is rooted in biblical teaching so what I want to do today is basically three things as we consider corporate worship and giving as a, as, a, as a part of that. I want to ask the question, why should we give? Secondly, where we should give? And then thirdly, what we should give? Okay? So let's start with the first one. Why do we give? I'll put this up on the screen as point number one. Giving is worship. That's the that's sort of the, the nutshell here, but I'll explain that. The why of giving, by the way, does get into the theology of giving. And again, that's beyond our scope. But if you want it in a nutshell, it really comes down to worship. And I don't know if we think of it that way, because I think most Christians, if, we, if you ask them why we should give, are probably going to give one of two answers, one of two reasons. The first is they may say, well, it's because we're supposed to. There's biblical commands to to give of our money, tithes, offerings, things like that. It's something that we're supposed to do. That might be one reason. The second one would be in order to meet certain needs, right? There are things that, that, that have to run, and there are, things, there are poor people that need to be cared for, and so we need to meet those needs. That's the reason why we give. In other words, they would say there's need and there's obligation. Those are the two primary reasons why we should give. I want to say that there is some practical truth to both. Yes, there are needs and there are obligations. Those are true. But neither one of those two reasons actually gets to the heart 
of God's teaching about why he wants us to give. Does God need your money? Think about that. Does God need your money? Of course not. If so, why would he say this? Psalm 50. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God doesn't need your money, in other words, right? He doesn't need that. He already owns everything. And he also isn't interested in you fulfilling some obligation just for the sake of the obligation itself. That's, that, would, that would be something we would call rote uh, empty religion. And that's what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. That's what God reprimanded the faithless people of Israel for. Matthew 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe, you give of mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. You've met the obligation, but the heart is lacking, right? The weightier matters of the law being justice, mercy, faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So in other words, he's saying the giving is good, but the giving isn't in itself the obligation that I'm interested in. I'm interested in your heart. And in the Old Testament, Isaiah 1, God says to his people, bring no more vain offering. In other words, bring no more meaningless offerings. Wrote empty religion obligation is not the point. It's not that God wants our money. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And perhaps there's no other passage of Scripture that sums it up better than Matthew chapter 6, which I'll put up here for you. This is what Jesus says. He says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. He's, he's, he's obviously pointing out a dichotomy here. You can, you can build up your treasures here on earth, you can be invested in your stuff and your money, or you can take those things and, and aim for something bigger than that, right? Aim for a, a more spiritual mindset in the way that we think about our money. Why does he say that? Because he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And then he explains that a little bit. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. He's pointing out this clear reality that a that our money is a, is a huge idol for us, or it certainly can be. Why? Because, again, we can trust in it. We can find our stability and security in it. We can think that if, if we just had this, everything else would be okay. In other words, we're taking our money and we're placing it in the place of God, where God alone can, can dwell and hold those responsibilities. We, we're meant to place our trust in Him. We're meant to find our security in Him right? Jesus is pointing this out. When he says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, he's also making one of the best arguments here for why we should give. 
giving back to the Lord protects our hearts from becoming attached to the things of this world. He says there, where your treasure is, your heart will be. It serves as this sort of spiritual thermometer. It's, it's taking the temperature of our hearts. Do I love God more than I love my money? Do I believe that my money is something that belongs to me? Do I believe that it's something that, that I produced or that I'm ultimately responsible for? Or do I recognize, as James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights? Or as John said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Or as Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Where's my heart? Do, does this stuff belong to me or, or is it from the Lord? Has he given it for a, a, a purpose? Is my heart to be attached to it or to him? You know, we think about giving in the Old Testament. The, they had the tithe, right? What was the pr primary purpose of the tithe? It was to serve as an instrument of worship. It was meant to be both a recognition and a reminder that God is the source of all things, that he's the one who ultimately provides for his people. Again, remember, God doesn't need our money. God already owns everything. His desire is for our heart. For us to be able to say, look, we trust in you, God, and we praise you. We give you honor and glory for your abundant goodness in meeting our every need. So here's a challenge for us. We, we need to, to kind of really evaluate our hearts and wrestle with this question. If you find that your heart is overly consumed with the things of this world, and I'd venture to guess that uh, all of us, if not most of the time or all of the time, certainly some of the time, would have to say, you know what, my heart's easily tempted to be consumed with the things of this world. That's, the, I think, one of the biggest temptations there is. If you find that you're overly consumed with the things of this world, Jesus' words here instruct us, give it away. Give it away. Lay up your treasure in heaven and your heart will follow. Otherwise, we do run the risk of trusting in an idol. You cannot serve God and money. Joshua says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. Incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why do we give? I think this is a primary reason why we give. It is an act of worship. It is a way for us to say to the Lord, God, you are the source of my life. God, you are the one who sustains me. You are the desire of my heart. God, it's your promises that I trust in because your promises will not disappoint. They won't disappear. And though it's easy for my flesh to lead me to cling to my money, to my stuff, my security and the earthly things, I confess that it belongs to you, God, because my heart belongs to you. So take this offering as a declaration of my trust in you. Take this offering as a, as a declaration of, uh, of, of, of your worth 
and your worthiness. Use this for your glory, God. Use this in the lives of others and for the advancement of your kingdom because my hope and my glory are in you. That's, That's the heart attitude behind a willing act of worship in giving. And why do we do that corporately then? When we give back to the Lord as a corporate act of worship, we demonstrate and remind each other then of these truths every time we act on them together. Just like we've talked about with singing or with corporate prayer or with public reading of scripture, things that we do in our worship services, the fact that we do them together, it's a declaration together, it's a, it's a reminder to one another that, that God is worthy, that these truths are true, and, and doing them corporately reinforces that for us as the body, as a unified people in Christ. We give glory to God when we give. So the question then would be, well then, where do we give? And how do we give? That's the second point, where we give. And I want to submit to you that the priority in the New Testament for giving instructions is to the local church. The priority of the local church. The instructions we have in the New Testament really are focused in two primary areas. Uh, Both are within the local church. Here's the first one. It's the needs of the ministerial staff, uh, especially those who teach. So 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, in the temple service, excuse me, get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So here's Paul talking to the Corinthians about temple life, right? And in the Old Testament temple life, the the offerings that were brought to the temple were indeed there to sustain the living, if you will, of those who were serving in the temple in ministerial roles, the priesthood. And so he's he's carrying that over and he's saying the same likewise in the in this New Testament church in the Christian church we're not going to the temples, we're not making offerings there. But there's a primary focus on the local church for those who are serving in the church to get their living by the gospel. Galatians 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. You are taught the word and you're to share with those who are in the ministerial offices that are teaching you. 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So again, Paul is making the argument here that those who are employed in the church, who are giving themselves full time to the the teaching ministries, particularly within the church, are to be supported by the church. So that's the first emphasis in the New Testament of giving is that, that local church priority to the, those who are in ministerial offices. The second is to meet needs, yes, needs, within the congregation. First, local churches, and then also sister churches. Acts 4, we see that example in a local church. It says there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. 
So again, they're meeting needs within the body, right? Taking care of those who were lacking, those who maybe were poor. But they were doing that in the context of the local church. They were laying those offerings at the feet of the apostles so that they could be distributed distributed amongst the body. There was oversight. There was body life involved in the way that that was done. It was priority through the local church, meeting needs in the local church. And then we see in Romans 15 also similarly local church collections to be given out to other uh, needy believers in other churches. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, Paul says, bringing aid to the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So they're giving within their local church to bless other local churches who are in need in other regions. So that's the priority that we see of in terms of where we give in the New Testament. It's local church-centric for those primary purposes. The question then is, does that mean you can't give outside of the local church? And the answer is no, of course not, but the priority of the local church is what is biblically commanded. Are there ways to glorify God and to meet the needs of those outside the church as well? Of course there are, but again, our priority, as we've talked about through the, the way that we use our spiritual gifts and the responsibilities that we have as a local church community, our priority is first to our immediate family, right, before it goes out to our extended family or to the world around us. Galatians 6.10, I think, is a good reminder of that. Paul there says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And our giving is a way in which we can do good to everyone. But he says, especially to those who are the household of faith. And I, and I, I was looking this week at 1 Timothy 5.8, and I think there's a, parallel, uh, there's a parallel concept here in terms of priority of the local family. This is not within the context of how we give within the local church, but, but it's in the context of how the local church is, is using that giving to meet needs, specifically the, the needs of widows in the congregation. And Paul reminds people, look, if you don't provide for your own relatives, if there are widows in your own family, especially for members of his own household, he says, you've denied the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. In other words, we take care of our immediate family as a, as a priority in which to demonstrate that we our godliness. That's what we're called to do. So within our immediate family of the local church, I think we can make a parallel uh, application here. Yes, the priority is the immediate family. So how do we do that? How do you give here at Edgewater? How do you meet the needs of the, the immediate family here? A lot of you are new. Uh, a lot of you have, have become a part of the body here sort of during or post-COVID. If you were around before that, you, you'd know that these first two concepts, we, we really put them together that we saw giving as an act of corporate worship, and we made that uh, a way in which we participated together every week. We would pass around an offering plate as a part of our worship service. Again, that was to demonstrate that this is an act of worship on our behalf. We are giving back to the Lord and, 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 and asking him to, to be glorified and use those gifts in the lives of others. That was a weekly part of our corporate worship. And that stopped because we shut down, obviously. Uh, then the online giving became the primary platform for giving here at the church. And now that even though we're gathered together, there's still a sense in which passing a plate just kind of feels a little, a little germy, right? <laughs> So we haven't gone back to doing that. Um, 
we're still trying to figure out how to make giving more of a, of, a, of a visible and tangible part of our corporate worship here together on Sunday. But what we do do is there is a box that's back there on that back wall so that if you want to come and bring your offerings to the Lord, you can place them into that box on a Sunday morning. And yes, of course, most people in 2021 don't write checks or carry around cash with them. Most of you are pretty much all you know, electronic in the way that your finances operate. So we do have online giving here. And the link to that is in our bulletin every week. And there's ways that you can do that sort of on a one-time basis, or some people can set that up on a recurring basis. Question is, you know, if, if we see these things as acts of worship and corporate worship, how's, what's the best way for us to go about that? And the, and the answer to that question is, uh, I don't fully know at this point, right? But I, I think that we need to figure out ways in which that we can express together, again, encouraging one another, reminding one another that giving is an act of worship. So if you're giving online, wonderful. Um, but yeah, we're going to figure out some ways to make that a little bit more a part of our Sunday morning you know, worship corporate worship together. Um, recurring giving, by the way, a, very convenient, uh, but there's a danger in that, isn't there? The danger would be that I, I sort of set, a, set up a giving uh, schedule, and then I, I, I forget about it. And then I have to ask the question, does it, does it cease to be an act of worship if I've done that? Uh, it may or may not, right? That's a matter of the heart, and that's a matter between you and the Lord, but I think there's an inherent danger there that we, we want to we make sure that however we give, we do that in a way that we are, we are mindful of that, that we're, we're making that a consistent act of worship to God. And as we go through the rest of the, the passages here this morning, I'll, I'll give you some other things that you should be thinking about. But definitely something to consider, uh, something to pray through, and just remember that the, the, the point of our giving is, is that God wants our hearts, not just our money. So how do we do that in a way that expresses to God our hearts? The other big question that comes up is how much should we be giving, right? I think that's the biggest question that people often ask. And so I'll put this up as our third point this morning, what we give. And the answer is there, well, give generously. Why? Because that's how Christ gave to us. Here's our motivation for giving. As believers, our motivation is the gospel. Our motivation is the gospel. Jesus gave all for us. Grace, the grace that we've received from God through Christ in the gospel is the ultimate act of generosity. Why? Because he gave everything of himself to us when we deserved nothing, right? That's what grace is all about. It's the ultimate act of generosity. Philippians 2, we see this uh, clearly spelled out by Paul. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he had everything, everything belongs to him. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to that status or position, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even the most shameful kind of death. That's the picture of, 
of grace and generosity that we have in Jesus Christ. And that ought to be what guides the way we think about how much the Lord is requiring from us in our worship of him and giving back to him. Does the Bible give us a rule? Is there a certain amount or percentage of income that we're given in Scripture to guide the way we do that? The answer is that the Old Testament did give a rule, but the New Testament does not. The New Testament does not. In the Old Testament, there was the tithe, and the tithe was 10% as a baseline. You say, well, where did that come from? Well, it it started back with, with Abraham, actually, back in Genesis, when Abraham meets with Melchizedek, this great king priest, and he offers him 10% of all that he has, that's sort of the basis for the, the 10% idea that we see in the New Testament. That's the first time that we see it pop up. But then in the Mosaic law, that becomes codified. Right? Moses is in the law tells the people of Israel that that's what they're to tithe, the first tenth of their produce, the first tenth of their, their income uh, to the Lord. Truth be told, though, there were multiple offerings, there were multiple tithes in Old Testament Israel, and the actual percentage went up to something closer to 22%. But that baseline tithe was listed at 10%. So that's why we hear the word tithe. And when you hear tithe, that's usually what's being referred to, is this idea of, a, of the first tenth of our, of our income, the first tenth of our produce belongs to the Lord. But when we get to the New Testament, you don't see that anymore. There's nothing in the New Testament that's specific like that. And we know that in the New Testament, we're no longer bound to the Mosaic law. So there's no amount stipulated there. What is continually talked about, though, is that our giving is, again, rooted in the generosity of gospel grace. Mark chapter 12. This is the familiar story of, of Jesus watching the, the widow put in the, just the small offering into the offering box. And he says, he says, he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And they might have stopped and said, Jesus, did you not see the big amounts of money that these rich guys were bringing? She dropped in a penny. What are you talking about? She gave more. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And he marvels at that. He marvels at that. Generosity is a response to generous grace. He's not saying here to his disciples or to us that we need to give all that we have to live on. But he marvels at this poor widow who does so because he sees it as a radical act of faith. This woman saying to the Lord effectively, I trust you wholly. You're worthy of all that I am and all that I have. And he marvels at that radical act of faith. It's not the amount, it's the level of trust displayed. It's the level of devotion displayed. That's what the New Testament leads us to. What other guidelines does the New Testament give us? If you want to grab a Bible, 
I know I've been putting verses on the screen. I'm going to have you look these up because I'm going to give you several things to, put, to look at. 2 Corinthians 8. Krista began to read this for us earlier in the scripture reading. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. There, there is a great two chapters that talk about giving in the church. And I think there's some wonderful principles there that we can pull out. I want to point them out. Remember, we've started off with the New Testament is leading us in generosity. We're to give generously, rooted in gospel grace. We see that here as well in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So he's talking again about these churches in Macedonia who have put aside this offering for those churches in Jerusalem who are in need. And he's saying, like, the, like that poor widow, these are, these are destitute people. They didn't have a lot to give. But the fact that they, that they gave anyway is this massive display of faith, this massive display of generosity. So we see that here again. Gospel generosity, gospel grace is a motive. Look over at chapter 9. Verse 5, second principle here is that our giving should not only be generous, but it should be spirit-led and, at the same time, planned. Chapter 9, verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you've promised. Arranging in advance the gift that you've promised. Then look down at verse 7. Yet each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You see the, 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 the mixture there of there's a planned amount, something that I've decided, something that I've set aside in advance, and yet at the same time, something that I've decided in my heart. I've, I'm trusting the Lord to give me direction and guide me in, in, the, in the generosity that I'm to display. It's planned but it's also spirit-led. Back in chapter 8, verse 12, we see that it's also in proportion excuse me, to our income. Verse 12 of chapter 8, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that rather as a matter of fairness, your, abundant at, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So he's talking, he's contrasting this church here in Corinth with the church in Jerusalem right now. And he's saying, right now, you guys have abundance in comparison to them. But I want you to give in accordance to what you have. But I'm not asking you to give what you don't have. There may be times when you don't have, right? So give according to what you have. But be generous towards others who are in need. And at some point in time, the, the, the tables may turn. And they may have and you may lack. And he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for there to be fairness here. Those who have much can give much. Those who have little will have no lack. And hopefully as the Lord blesses and sustains Different people will be in those different boats at different times, and we'll all have opportunity to be givers and recipients of that gospel grace. So it should be in proportion to your income, what you're making now. 
And then again, back in chapter 9, verse 7, not under compulsion, but cheerfully. Again, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's why there's not an amount given in the New Testament. It's never meant to be an act of obligation. It's meant to be something that we long to do. It's an, it's a, it's an expression of our, of our love and worship of God, right? If my wife were to tell me, you don't bring me flowers enough, and I showed up tomorrow with flowers, neither one of us is going to feel really good about it, right? <laughs> but if I just show up completely unprompted, I don't know, maybe not flowers for you. Maybe it'd be more like taking you out to a nice dinner or something or dancing with you in the kitchen, right? Something that really, that really spoke to like, I, I consider you, I care for you, I love you. That, that expresses uh, b- beautiful love. That expresses adoration. That's what God is interested in from us. Not under compulsion, but cheerfully. And then finally, in faith, and in thankful worship, chapter 9, verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So as we give, Paul's, Paul's actually saying here, as we give, God will supply what we need to, to carry out that act of worship. He gives, he, it all comes from him, and he'll continue to supply and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's not a prosperity gospel promise. That gets twisted into prosperity gospel promises. But there is still truth to that fact. God is the giver of all good things. And he'll supply. As as we pour out, he continues to fill us up. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So he's saying this this is an act of worship that that produces not only thanksgiving in you as the giver, but produces worship and thanksgiving in those who are the recipients of those gifts in the way that God disperses that money to meet the needs of those in the body. So we give generously. We give in a spirit-led yet planned out way in proportion to our income cheerfully not out of obligation as an act of faith and thanksgiving and worship that's the guidelines that we see in the new testament about giving now having said all that that the new testament leads us towards generosity not an obligation i will say this that's what compels me and i'm speaking for myself That's what compels me that 10% is a starting point, not a throw it up, just kind of throw that to the wind. Again, I'm 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 speaking for myself here, all right, but I'm just I'm pastorally, when I look at the Old Testament and I see there's a there's a 10% tithe, and then I see in the New Testament, Jesus gave all and he's called us to to, to give of ourselves generously as a response to gospel grace, it's hard for me to look at the 10% as being bigger than that. Does that make sense? So, so I want to be very careful here to say that this, the New Testament does not lay on us a number. And I am not 
in any way trying to lay on any of us a number. I just think that it's helpful for us to think about this practically. And as I think about it practically, 10% seems to me to be more of a starting point than a bar that's been lowered. And the reason I can say that is, is twofold. One, I look at the New Testament and I say, where does gospel generosity ever fall short of the demands of the law? Where does it ever fall short of the demands of the law? When I go to look at the, the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and I see Jesus quoting the law, and he says, you've heard it said, and he'll give, he'll give a specific law. Where does he ever pull it back and say, what I say to you is actually, yeah, pull back on that. You can do something a little less. He always ramps it up, right? You can, you, you know, you're, 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 not to, you're not to commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even look with lust upon somebody. You're told to, to you know, not, to, to love your, 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 your enemy. I'm telling you, ramp it up. So I don't see him pulling back. And I don't see the New Testament writers here pulling back. I see him compelling us with gospel grace and generosity. And then secondly, I think I want to give sacrificially like Jesus did. Going back to Philippians 2, he, he emptied himself. He gave of himself fully for us. I want to give of myself sacrificially as Jesus did. In other words, I want to give in such a way that I have to ask the question, does it affect my heart to give? If it doesn't affect my heart at all, then I, I think I would, I would find myself becoming more and more like the Pharisees who just meet an obligation but if it's affecting my heart, in other words, it's making me have to really prayerfully wrestle with this, like, Lord, can I be this sacrificial? If I do this, I'm trusting in you. I think that's a, a, a right posture of, of faith and a right posture of worship. So again, I'm not compelling anything to anyone. I'm just explaining to you pastorally how I view it. I want us to view it, I think we all ought to view it in a way where we're really asking hard questions like, is this, uh, is this a, sa a sacrificial offering of worship or not? And if you look at the giving patterns of the church in America, you have to wonder if many of us are doing that at all. Here's the stats, by the way, of, the, of giving patterns in the church within the United States right now. One in five professing believers, so about 20% of us, don't give at all. The average Christian gives between 2.5% and 3% of their income. The median, though, is 0.6%. So if 20% of us aren't giving anything, and those of us who do, the majority of us, are somewhere between 0 and 2.5%, um, it just makes me makes me question, do we really understand gospel grace? <laughs> like, are we, are we giving in accord to that? Do we see giving as an act of worship? Or maybe we're just looking at it as in terms of meeting needs and, 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 and fulfilling obligations. And we're not doing it very well at that. Statisticians say this. They say if 90% of Christians, so again, not all of us, but if most of us, if 90% of us were to tithe 10%, giving by American Christians would increase per year 
by $133 billion. Now again, does God need our money? No. Would that make a significant impact, though, on the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom work if we had an extra $133 billion of giving in the church? I think it would. So something to consider. Now let me ask this question, and I'm, I'm about to close here. What if I really don't have anything to give? Is that, is that a reality for some of us? Absolutely it can be, right? Many of us like that, that widow. If we were to give, you know, just a, the smallest amount, it would be, it would be a radical act of, of trust and faith. You might, you might say, I have no grocery money left. I have no rent money left to do that. Is that what we're called to do? I don't think that, that that would be fair to say at all. Even as we look at the example of that poor widow, she, she, she made that choice, but that wasn't, that's not an obligation on anybody. In fact, there's plenty of things we could look at in Scripture that compel us to take care of our families and to meet our obligations and to pay our bills, right? So, so we're not all being asked to do something radical like that. And maybe for some of us at certain times, you just can't really give of your finances. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, here's what I want to encourage you. Come back next Sunday, because Joey's going to be talking to us more about how we give and participate in worship and the building up of the body in, in all kinds of other ways, particularly with our time and with our, our talents, not just with our treasure. But I, I, I hope that we'll all consider this and pray you know, pray, pray about that during the week. You know, Lord, is, does my, do I give at all, first of all? And if I do, does that, is that reflective of, of a heart of worship for you? Is it, is it reflective of my understanding of the priority of the local church? And am I doing that in a way that, that I'm really asking hard questions and, 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 and looking for your spirit to lead me, Lord, in, in how I think about this? And let's see what the Lord does in terms of continually to form our hearts as corporate worshipers together. And again, like I said, next week, there may be, may be other opportunities to think about ways that you can give of yourself. Do that as an act of worship that, that may not involve money, but might involve something that really blesses those in the body who need it in the way that you serve them with your time and your gifts. But in that, I want to make sure, let's not lose sight of the gospel motivation that we've been given. We sang of this song earlier, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So giving becomes for us, I think, a really powerful and important act of worship that aligns my heart with his heart and keeps me from denying the gospel by actively clinging to the things of this world. Do I really believe that, that, that my trust and my hope are in him? Yeah, then, then let go of the things of this world. Be responsible with them. Use them. Use them for yourself. You know, <laughs> take care of your family. Meet your needs. But, uh, but are you giving in a way that recognizes it all comes from God? It all belongs to God. And this is a way for me to demonstrate to him that he matters to me more than the things of this world. Does your giving reflect the grace of God shown towards you? That's the question I hope we'll wrestle with this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity again, this, this whole you know, month or so that we've been just asking some of these uh, 
practical questions of your word. Lord, I thank you for the church. Lord, I thank you for the the beauty of what the church is. How you've called us not just individually to salvation in you, but you've called us together as your body, as as a family in Christ. And you give us this weekly uh, uh, rhythm and pattern of coming together to hear your word, to pray together, to sing of the truths of the gospel together, Lord, to just build one another up. And indeed, Lord, you've, you've also called us through your word to a, re, a, a, a regular rhythm of, of giving. So, Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd just continue to form us in those things. Help us, each of us, to determine in our own hearts, in conversation with you and in consultation with your word, what it is that you would have us do. How can we worship you, Lord? Protect us from from falling into any kind of rote, empty religious exercise here. Protect us from some sense of obligation that's that's more pharisaical than biblical. But Lord, make, make our hearts soft towards you, Lord. Take our hearts. Take our lives, Lord. Help us to give ourselves fully to you and to one another as as an act of love and joyfully and cheerfully so. That's the heart of Christ. That's your heart for your people. Lord, we commit ourselves to you in all these things and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.